Welcome to the Thinkers and Doers podcast, where we hear from the leading thinkers and doers shaping the world around us. I am your host, Luke Graham, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Fabian Braisman, a departmental research lecturer at the University of Oxford's Oxford Internet Institute. Today we speak about Fabian's paper, The Global Polarization of Remote Work, which he co-authored alongside Fabian Stephanie, Oli Tutloff, Otto Cassie, Mark Graham, and Vili Liedenwerter. I hope you enjoy. All right, Fabian Braisman of the Oxford Internet Institute. Tell me, what is a data scientist? How did you come into this world? And what is it that you do at the Oxford Internet Institute? Yeah, thank you very much for this question. Yeah, data science is a buzzword these days seen everywhere around and it is hard to define in just only one way, just because there is so many different ways of doing data science and so many different applications. So I just want to focus on the academic side of data science, which I'm doing at the Oxford Internet Institute and how I came about becoming a data scientist in academia. So my background is in economics. I think economics is one of the best fields to study if you want to become a data scientist within the social science realm. And here's why, because economics, of course, teaches you loads of mathematics, loads of statistics, and also a bit of coding. So kind of the hard skills and the ways of thinking about problems that you need for data science, but also it brings you closer to like social science thinking, not necessarily the most exciting questions because it, you it all revolves around the same kind of things around supply and demand, labor markets, finance, and so on and so forth. And there's many, many more things to explore and to study within social data science, but still it gives you loads of the hard skills. There's also, of course, many people with other different backgrounds. There is computer scientists, there is econometricians or statisticians, and there's also social scientists, those who studied, let's say, political science or different social science disciplines that go into data science. But I think it is important that if you want to become a data scientist, that you need to bridge between like the coding and statistics, statistics knowledge, as well as the um, topical domain knowledge that you need. And this is why we don't see so many people from the natural sciences, <clears throat> excuse me, doing uh, social data science necessarily in the best way, just because you also need the domain knowledge. So I studied economics. And then I worked as a data scientist in industry in a marketing company where I could really hands on with real world problems, explore to analyze big data sets. And then I was very lucky when I applied for a job as a postdoctoral data scientist at the OAI, the Oxford Internet Institute, that I really got this job, which still makes me exciting and uh, has clearly had a has clearly had a profound effect on my life. Yeah, right. Okay. So, okay. So economics into data science, um, you know, some of the other, so I, I understand there are a number of sociologists in that world as well. Um, at least those who, who focus quite heavily on statistics and the like, as you said, around the mathematics. What is it then like, if, if you give me a bit of background on the Oxford Internet Institute. So you and I actually collaborated together some years ago now uh, at the Oxford Future of Real Estate, which was a period that you took between um, stints at the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, when you were looking at, you know, say the disruption of the built world. But in the Oxford Internet Institute, you've been like, say, um, addressing a number of really interesting and, uh, and say, divergent topics. One of them we're going to go into today, right? But, um, but it's quite an interesting university department. What, what is it that you guys do? What's the mission 
um, behind the Oxford Internet Institute? Yeah, so the Oxford Internet Institute, as the name suggests, studies the internet. That could again mean just literally everything. So it is not about like the technical infrastructure or the computer science of internet related servers and these kind of things. It is really about understanding how this profound, impactful technology changes how we live. So it is to understand how life is happening online and how the online world is really flowing back and influencing how we all live. And by now, like more than 30 years into the internet era, I think we can say it has had a very, very profound impact on all of us in numerous ways. So there is different, different focus topics. I'd like to say at the Oxford Internet Institute and really interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary research groups and topics happen and topics being investigated. There's on the one hand, of course, things around like, say, social media. There's um, these negative effects like fake news, echo chambers, um, these bubbles that are forming then, all the potential negative effects that are studied uh, within the online world, but also things like what we are doing more, like um, trying to investigate the uh, how the digital economy is developing and how it is impacting the um, the economy at large and also there is um, ethics of AI and related subjects also the legal and philosophical implications of these novel technologies mm-hmm. okay and so that that leads us quite well then to this this particular paper that we're, we're going to dive into today um, called the global polarization of remote work so when I first came across this paper um, when you published it uh, you and your co-authors published it, I should say. Um, something that jumped out to me is that some of the findings weren't what I would have expected. It's it's not what people um, say happens or what was meant to happen online. You talk about ethics and AI, you talk about the effect of the internet, something that's always really fascinated me and that I, I, I've done a little bit of research into as well um, is, uh, is the democratizing effect of the internet, say democratizing of information. The negative effect of that, as you kind of pointed out before, can be fake news because... There are no barriers there. There are no um, checks and balances. So anyone can put information out there, um, including bad actors, say. Um, and other than being remote work, being potentially this liberating force of you know um, distributed teams, virtual teams, however you want to phrase it. So global polarization of remote work, what's the backstory of this particular study? So what led you guys down to this route, looking into this particular topic, how were you able to get the data to be able to do this study in a robust way? Um, and why were you personally interested in it? Yes. And um, thank you very much for this question. And I want to be frank and honest about this. So in the end, the study is called the global polarization of remote work. But when we started working on this subject, remote work was not yet a buzzword, a term that was used widely, it was not of, of wide interest. And why was that? Because we started in 2017 already. Mm. The study was published end of 2022, so it took us quite some time. And this is also something one needs to say, frankly, when talking about you know the academic production cycle. It can sometimes take a very long time and be very frustrating in the meantime while you're working on this and you never see uh, light at the end of the tunnel. This was definitely the case here. So when we originally started working on this, we were more interested in the very direct phenomenon that we're measuring here, which is called online labor market. So I should just briefly say what an online labor market is. Everyone these days knows Numerous online market and they're being used just 
everywhere and by everyone, let's say Amazon. So instead of buying books in the bookstore, many people just go to Amazon and um, order them online. So e-commerce is one of the most successful and most important and impactful drivers of like the digital economy. So this is just commodities are traded online via platforms. This is the, the traditional way of looking at this, but there's also other platforms like let's say Spotify, for example, or Apple Music and all the other numerous platforms. Instead of going to a shop and buying your whatever um, dev device it is that you would want to have your music on, instead you just go online and download it or you just listen it online. So again, we see a platform emerging um, having a big impact on how a market is structured. And the same is happening with the labor market. And this is now for the last around 15 to 20 years since the first of these so-called online labor platforms have been developed. Famous names in this field are, among other things, um, Amazon Mechanical Turk, Fiverr, Freelancer.com, Upwork, and many more. And we have studied data from one of these platforms, a global, active, English-speaking platform, that has a large market share according to some investigations. So we thought this platform, even though it's just from one platform, is kind of representative of what's happening on this on the labor market. And our question was really, instead of just looking into the platform, which has been done quite a lot by scholars, like what are the platform dynamics? Let's say, what happens if um, there's a bad review for a freelancer, for a worker working online? Or what is if um, in an experimental way, you're just randomly distributing good reviews to people? These kind of things have been investigated and a lot of thinking did go into the idea of how the platform design, how the market design, the web interface and all these kind of things influence how the market works. Instead, we really wanted to look into the implications of it. So where is this work actually happening? Why did we want to ask this question? Because um, at the Internet Geography chair, where I used to work back then when we started this project, led by Professor Mark Graham, they idea was flowing around that even though everything seems to happen just in cyberspace and digital space, of course, it comes from somewhere. And this also brings then loads of implications, like geopolitical implications, economic implications, and so on and so forth for people being on the ground and contributing to these different markets. And obviously the labor market in the kind of real economy is one of the most important parts of the overall economy. Hence the idea, even though these markets or these platforms are relatively small compared to overall labor markets, they might have in the long run, a very huge impact. If more and more parts of the labor market actually platformize and become platform-like as we saw it in other markets like e-commerce, music, and so on. Mm, yeah. And I guess to that point, something that, you know, um, is a bit of food for thought. I remember um, doing some research a little um, well, not too long ago, actually, that indicated that essentially all growth in in retail spending in the UK and, and many other parts of the world was attributed to e-commerce online spending. Um, you know, the brick and mortar, you might refer to it as retail, um, had essentially been been flat. Um, and so, you know, interesting implications if that's then also playing out in, in other markets. So, yeah, re really interesting point. So if, if we then if we then dive into the first finding, right, from this paper, which is um, you say that North American, European and South Asian countries attract most remote jobs, right? Um, why? Why is that the case? Yeah, um, maybe just very briefly, how did we come to this finding in the first place? Yeah. Just yeah. so for the uh, listener today, 
to understand how this actually works. So again, imagine the platform looking very much like Amazon, but more like mm. this Amazon marketplace where you have numerous different actors. So it is not like you just buy from this big retailer, but instead you as a potential employer or client of on this platform, you have a project that you would want someone to work on. Let's say web development, you want your website to be developed. You want, let's say someone helping you with the, with accounting of your company or mm. design a logo for a company or anything that you could imagine, anything that really doesn't require face-to-face -face interaction, but could be done remotely. And obviously over the years, because of the COVID pandemic, we saw many, many more parts of the workplace, many, many more parts of the labor market becoming potentially conductable remotely. So um, imagine you are a client, you have a project, you want someone to help you with something. So you uh, will set up your project website on this, um, on this platform, and then freelancers can apply to this job. So there's a, a, low, a whole bunch of people that will apply from all over the world. And these people, they have their own little profile where they provide information like a, something like a virtual CV, you could say. So their mm. educational background, their experience, their skills, and also their location. And this is just one of the features being used. And what we did is we geocoded the data of several hundred thousand of these freelancers who did in total like almost 2 million projects. This is, I think, one of the largest data set in the field. And if you think about it, like a labor market study oftentimes has few observations. So we were quite lucky to have such a big snippet of the labor market that we could investigate. And um, thanks to this geocoding and then um, merging these geocoded data point that is um, not only saying, let's say I'm a freelancer from St. Petersburg, but we could really see this is a freelancer from St. Petersburg, which is, you know, one of the biggest cities in Russia. We could say this corresponds to this and that OECD region or this and that national statistical region. That was very important for us to really geocode the data and have a corresponding statistical unit so that we could do actually all these regional and economic geographical studies. So, and what we found, you just said correctly, we see that um, it's not a level playing field. It is not that people from all over the world seem to evenly contribute. Instead, we see huge geographical clustering. So almost all of the market is divided into only a very few number of countries. The most important freelancer destinations, so where most of the work goes, is India, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Ukraine, Russia, Serbia, and the United States. So only very few countries almost kind of completely dominate this market. And this is surprising if you think about it that Theoretically, you only need a computer and internet infrastructure to contribute. There's no barrier to entry whatsoever. So we find that it's really these few regions like Eastern Europe, Southern Asia, and North America that dominate the market. And our main understanding, our main reasoning why this is, is because these places have the infrastructure, the skills, or the enabling institution that allow people to contribute. Of course, there's also people from other high-income countries but if you think about, let's say you're in Switzerland, one of the you know the highest price, highest income countries of the world, if you compete with other freelancers from around the world, it might be difficult for you to set a competitive price, let's say for logo design or web mm. development. So there is clearly a price effect. But what we were expecting, what we haven't seen, is we would have thought that more projects go to really low price destination. This is also the hope that some people and also within the development community thought that this was happen. So 
places with very low price levels, let's say in sub-Saharan Africa, they could theoretically benefit the most from online labor markets because they could set prices that are somehow, you know, on the global average, which would be a huge bonus for people in these communities, in these areas to work on such projects instead of getting the low local um, wage levels or maybe no jobs at all because these jobs don't exist there to some extent. But unfortunately, there is a lot of clustering and most of the jobs go to particular places. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, especially around sub-Saharan Africa, because another benefit um, of sub-Saharan African labor is that it's uh, it's the same time zone as European, right? Um, or at least very close. You know, it's not it's not the same as a European working with freelancers, say, in the Philippines, which is essentially on the other side of the planet. Um, and therefore, coordination and those sorts of things can become difficult. In, in a previous episode, we we're talking about remote teams um, with Dr. Professor Louise Mahler, and uh, and she was making a point around you know that that the touch points you know with remote teams and those sorts of things, and um, and that seems to be resolved in many ways in in sub-Saharan Africa. So essentially, then in summary, the challenge is where infrastructure exists. Um, for for remote work to be able to be facilitated effectively. And so I, I guess what that means, um, in some ways, internet connection has to have a big part of that uh, or contribute a, a big um, element to that. Uh, is there also social infrastructure, things like that play into part? Um, things like education systems, linguistics, anything like that that came up? Yes, absolutely. This is the important finding and one of the key findings of the key, you know, stepping stones in this whole story that we're telling in the paper. Mm. You also ask us for, you know, unexpected results. And this is mm. clearly an unexpected result. When we started working on this, em emulating earlier studies that looked into things like, let's say, the geography of Wikipedia contributions and these kind of things, so other platforms, mm. we thought that it will not tell us too much to um, dig into traditional socio-economic and infrastructure variables. We thought originally, most likely we look into this geography and the geography will just be, you know, scattered all around the globe or kind of unexplainable with these traditional measures. But instead, when we really try to, for example, look into internet connectivity, and I was really, really challenging this. I, I thought for some reason we were expecting that the share of internet or let's say the share of people having broadband access or the quality of internet on the ground would not play such a big role but instead it is really after you know numerous tests and numerous different robustness checks with it we found no it is really just a mirror so the online labor market is a mirror of the real economy the most important effects are as you just said the internet infrastructure which is quite obvious without internet you can't be online but mm. here more also as an enabler, a place that has good internet infrastructure also has other types of infrastructures and enabling institutions. And these are most importantly GDP per capita as an indication of the strength of the local economy. We measured this, you know, on different scales. We didn't look only into country level, but also subnational data where we were very lucky to be able to assemble um, subnational data both on OECD, that is high income country level, as well as global south country level. And um, other elements are the education level, of course, the local price level, whether the country is generally English speaking, and what we call the um, IT specialization of the economy. So we could measure this with different variables. Uh, for example, within the OECD countries, we had a share of um, ICT related economic activities 
on um, overall gross value added in this in this region on the country level we had the share of ict exports over gdp so kind of how far the economy is already within let's say ict related services and then little surprise the philippines and india particularly are traditional outsourcing destinations over a long time as back offices for us american and british companies they have already specialized into these areas and it seems to be that really those places that have an edge, that have an advantage in being close to the IT economy, also thrive in the online world. This is, if you think about it, seems like, okay, yeah, what the story morning glory kind of absolutely, absolutely natural, but it is it is in stark contrast to what people have expected. And also, this is important in contrast to what um, development agencies have been thinking about. There is initiatives in the world, like among others, the Rockefeller Foundation, as well as the Kenyan government, who both kind of aimed for bringing one million online jobs to Africa. And what we found, and what particularly the research group at the OII, led by Professor Mark Graham, called GeoNet, what they did is interviewing people on the ground in different places in India, in Southern Africa and other places to find out, okay, why are these people struggling? And again, most of the ideas then about why this online market doesn't seem to work for the poorest people in the world who could benefit the most was often focused around the platform. Why is the platform bad? Why is the platform leading to exploitation? And what we are showing with our study is this is all be true. This might all be true. And this is very important to go for a good platform and market design. Let's say um, any kind of coordinate, coordination mechanism so that uh, workers can um, remedy in case there's any any problems with employees these kind of things are important but what we show really is no matter what the economy is just really transcending into the online world so it is a mirror of the inequalities that are happening on the world and we should not be surprised to see that these stark inequalities from the real world that we know are there are also taking place online so the Mm. Digital economy by itself is not a panacea. It will not mm. just by itself lead to a complete removal of all these inequalities, but instead it will just again um, repeat all of these inequalities and in that way might even lead to more inequalities and worse outcomes for people than um, without it. And taking this into consideration, policymakers should rather focus on and building the infrastructure and enabling people on the ground to contribute instead of just looking at the platform or pinpointing at the platform. This is the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And so I guess then on, on the inequality sort of theme, that, that kind of nudges us quite gently into your second finding, um, which is not just this geographic distribution um, as far as um, global regions, continents, and those sorts of things, but also around um, cities versus regional areas. And, and what really interests me about this topic is, um, you know, hindsight's obviously twenty twenty for me, um, you know, looking at this, but uh, the debate, say, approximately three years ago right now around the death of the city, what role cities actually play, um, not just in labour markets, but in culture and all those sorts of things. Um, people saying, you know, with COVID, you know, why would anyone want to live in a city anymore? All those sorts of things. I stuck to London. Um, where are you right now, actually? Where are you yeah, right I'm now? At the moment in Berlin. So Berlin, thing. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, and when you're not in Berlin, generally you're either in London or Oxford, right? Oxford, not quite a city, obviously, but um, for obvious reasons, you're in Oxford. 
But uh, but take us take us through this this second finding: um, cities versus rural areas. Yes, cities versus rural areas, and this is you know where this story is not only relevant for like let's say a development community and um, development economic perspective, but really I think for everyone. And this is also where you know this topic of remote work and the. Um, the general tendency of the labor market to be organized in a different way these days is becoming relevant for everyone. Obviously, mm -hmm. this topic has made it um, to the headlines of the newspapers because of the COVID pandemic, because everyone was thinking, okay, now we can work remotely. And, you know, apart from all the negative effects of the COVID pandemic that, that we saw, this was to be seen, I think, over the, um, over the years of the pandemic as one of the benefits of it, as one of the, you know, positive side effect that uh, employers are becoming more flexible and they accept people working remote. So the idea for many was, okay, that's really great. I might move away from the big city. I can avoid the congestion and the high rents and I can go to the countryside or I can go to a holiday mm -hmm. destination, to the beaches of Bali or wherever and work from there. This mm -hmm. has worked for people during the pandemic, for some of them, not of course for all of them, but for those who didn't need face-to-face -face interaction, that might have been a useful way forward but here our results also are of relevance i believe because um, the platform data we look at is a fully remote labor market so it is a market where everything is happening remotely so it is not exactly corresponding to what the experience is for most people that is they have their employer on ground they go there they get the job they have the job interview maybe taking place via zoom whatever but then they have a desk in an office and they might show up or they might not show up and work remotely but what would the long-term consequences of this be if as we experience throughout 2020 and the years after employers adjust in a technological and organizational way most importantly so they by now are also fit having um, teams that are distributed all over the globe so what's the long-term consequence of this when you know not in your current job but maybe the next job you get a full remote job or the job after that how will you get it and where will that be and again, our findings speak to this in such a way that we see most of the jobs go to urban areas, no matter which um, level you look at, whether you look at within the United States, for example, whether you look at um, within continents or whether you look at just the, the globe overall. So it is not that, let's say, the programming jobs, they go out of San Francisco, where the employer sits, to, let's say... Um, um, some rural region in Sub-Saharan Africa or some rural region within the United States, but they will rather go to either New York or they might go to Delhi or Mumbai or some other big city. And we were, of course, struck by this. Why is it that we see this? And the same story holds again. It is the cities that have the enabling institutions. The cities are much more likely to enable you as a, let's say, newcomer to the labor market to have the right types of skills. This, because this is the places where you have higher education where you have universities where you have specialized vocational training and all these kind of indirect networks and indirect opportunities that makes it just more likely for you as a newcomer to the job to have the right types of in-demand skills let's say we make we like to make this one example of the technology tensorflow which is a recent uh, deep learning framework it's you know relatively complicated it's nothing that you will just easily learn in high school or so so you need to be very specialized you need to be proficient in the programming language Python and in machine learning in general. And only then will you experience or then you, will you have the opportunity to work with TensorFlow. But TensorFlow, 
as a technology, for example, is becoming very important for autonomous driving and all kinds of other deep learning frameworks. Of course, as technology advances, uh, we see changes to the requirements in the labor market. By now, for example, we have this huge buzz around ChatGPT, which mm -hmm. uh, has not only been able, let's say, to write poems and do all kinds of other fun things, but where again, is it most likely helping people in the labor market the most? Again, it is within the coding world because what mm -hmm. ChatGPT, for example, does very well is translating between different programming languages. Let's say you want to translate code from Python to R or the other way around or many other different things. And there again, it gives you an advantage. It makes your one hour of working more productive as a coder. So again, technologies oftentimes tend to help those who have these specialized skills. And where are these specialized skills on the ground? They are more likely to be in urban agglomerations in the large cities. And this is the other big finding from our paper showing why we see these inequalities and why they are more likely to be um, pronounced and further driven by such trends as remote work than mm. becoming um, an equalizer, a global level um, towards a more global level feed. So if I then ask you, because I mean, what, what's something that, you know, we see a lot from the UN and, and, and many other sources is, is this, this global urbanization that's been taking place, say, over the last 70 years and into the next 30 years, right, around, you know, um, rural, rural situated peoples, you know, going into cities, cities expanding, um, all those sorts of things. Do you see what you found you and your co-authors found here around um the prevalence of of city-based or urban-based workers remotely does that correspond with the growing proportion of people who are in cities or is this a disproportionate amount of labor in cities as well like on top of that well that's a really good question um we haven't looked into this comparison to that much extent but i would like to say from the literature i know about what is called like urban scaling or mm. kinds of cities, I would like to say most likely it is disproportionate. And why am I saying this? Because within this field of complex system science that looks into, you know, how in general complex systems are organized and how they form and how they evolve. And the city is a complex system because there is numerous interactions taking place on all kinds of layers and that is cultural, social, political, economical, and so on. And what it is, what's known from this field is that um, usually things kind of scale disproportionately. That is, for example, if you have a city that is twice the size in terms of population than another size, the crime rate, for example, will not just be twice as high, mm. but it will be, let's say, four times as high. So many things that are more related to the number of potential interactions in a city, they um, scale disproportionately. And the same goes for business opportunities and jobs and innovation, these kind of things, because they are not just... Um, dependent on a pure headcount, but rather on the chances to interact. And of course, in a mega city like London, of course, there is much more opportunities and much more chances for you to just, you know, randomly um, bump into someone, no, sorry, not randomly, I should say, but bump into someone who has this a very niche type of interest that you might have because you meet in, um, in meetups or another kind of uh, societies that focus on, let's say, deep learning, technolo technology development and all these kind of very advanced and niche kind of things. And in a rural environment, on contrast, um, of course, um, a certain number of people is just um, active in these, let's say, basic infrastructure things that say police, uh, um, administration, all these kind of other things. So it is 
obviously just um, statistically much less likely that you have these mm. number of people with these specialized types of interests and skills and hence um, this focus towards cities and the scaling in cities. Yeah, and, and you know what, that's a, like anecdotally, um, you know, there's there's a lot to say about that, even with expats that I talk to from all corners of the globe, um, where they're almost now trapped if they're in somewhere like London or in New York or in one of these mega cities, um, they work in the type of job that isn't doesn't really exist in, in their home city or their hometown or whatever, and, and in many ways they're almost trapped um, in a city, for some in a very positive way, it's where they want to be. Um, for others, perhaps they're trying to pivot in their careers. Uh, but at the end of the day, there are only two or three places in the world where their super specialization actually um, can meet the scale, say, of um, uh, or or the level of demand, say, um, to to meet the supply of their of their um, labor. So, yeah, in- interesting point. So, talking about skills. <laughs> We're very nicely setting ourselves up from one to the next. Um, talking about skills, the skill axis, right? Finding number three, three out of three um, for your paper. Remote work is polarized along the skill axis. Now, this is interesting to me because I've I've been deployed in remote work in both ways, right? Um, I've I've made use of remote work, freelance work. Uh, in fact, um, freelance work is involved in the production of this podcast, as an example. So, hello um, to to my team who will be uh, editing this after you and I are finished. Um, but also, when I originally left Australia and I studied, um, which was around about the time that you and I actually met. Um, I had spent several years studying and freelancing and traveling um, with my wife and dog. So I, I've lived on both sides of this and and uh, I've had my own experiences, say, of, um, of what might be considered in-demand skills um, versus those that aren't quite so. Uh, so as an example, I would say um, I've got quite a history of writing. I've done a lot of writing in my professional life. And w- when I was freelancing, if I was to say um, contract out my writing, oftentimes um, that wouldn't be worth my time because I'd have to discount my work so much compared to if I was contracting my skills, say in executive leadership of businesses, consulting, you know, those sorts of things. So, um, so it was definitely kind of picking and choosing what skills I was to market on a lot of these platforms. And of course, as well, also choosing which platform to use because because they vary a lot um, in the people they take on, the vetting process and, and all these sorts of things. So so in a, in a very roundabout way, that, that's why I would express a lot of interest in this third finding of yours, which is again, that remote work is polarized along the skills axis. So, so what does that actually mean? Um, and again, how, how did you lead to that, to that realization in this paper? Um, yeah, thank you very much for the introduction of this question. I'd like to comment on uh, your journey that you just mentioned. Sounds to me very much entrepreneur-like and business school-like, this thinking, you know, of really what skills you have and how you can bring them to the market might be something that people on the online labor market most likely will think about quite well, but maybe, you know, um, just... Um, um, just um, the average guy from the street might not because they have their job and they don't really think about it in terms of these individual skills. But the idea of jobs being a skill bundle or people having like certain composition of skills that go either well together or not too well together, this is how the, let's say, uh, um, labor market um, academic community is developing. So this idea of really looking into jobs as skill bundles is the um, 
relevant paradigm these days. This is the way that um, people think about jobs and occupations. And this opens the realm again. Where is it coming from? I should say this comes again from the rise of big data. Only thanks to all these new and novel large data set that we have these days, is it possible to think about jobs in such a way. In the old days, let's say, where we only had... Um, labor market statistics uh, from governmental sources they were just maybe counting the number of uh, plumbers and so on and so forth and it was maybe not of too much interest to thinking about um, these things but now thanks to another form of platform that is online job boards so with an online job board i'm referring to a website let's say like indeed.com where people can just find jobs remote or not remote usually it is on-site jobs and these um, jobs have um, descriptions of what is required in that particular type of job it's a lot of textual information and thanks to machine learning and artificial intelligence and a lot of statistics and a lot of manual coding, people were able to extract kind of the key information from these job postings, the location, the salary, and also the different skills. So instead of looking at this is a job, a plumber or web developer, whatever, people can now think about this is a job that requires these and these and these and these skills. And on the online labor platform, of course, as most of the jobs are relatively small scale, so it might be individual um, graphic design jobs, individual web development kind of gigs that might last only a few hours, a few days, or a few weeks. Mm -hmm. You have relatively many jobs that you will apply to all the time, more like an auction system, which is again another, you know, maybe, maybe for many people, a negative feature of the platform, but just focusing on um, the skills here, um, employers as well as um, or clients as well as freelancers, they know what skills they have or what skill they're looking at. And so they can look for, you know, those people that have a really good match in terms of these different skills. What we found by just looking into the distribution of um, wages, salaries, and overall successes for people to apply for these different jobs on the online labor market by skills, we find that this hugely varies. There is certain bunch of the labor market where there is complete um, where they, that are completely crowded where there's a lot of competition for jobs these are the kind of simpler types of jobs i don't want to say low skill necessarily but it is those types of skills that might be available to relatively many people that is let's say oral types of communication mm -hmm. that is let's say clerical skills um, in terms of job think of something like data entry here or um, telemarketing and then there's other types of jobs that have are often called high skills or more specialized types of skills that is programming related types of activities or things like management consulting whatever so those kind of skills that are hard to acquire but still what we found to be the jobs on the on the labor market that pay the highest average wages are those that if you look at traditional labor market statistics are not like the ones um, that need the highest educational degree but what we found the jobs with the highest wage levels are paralegal types of jobs and announcers and why is it that these types of jobs are so um, much high paying our interpretation is um, it is because these jobs are very much us specific so people that let's say need a voiceover mm -hmm. from online edward they want someone with an us american accent so they don't want mm. me with my german accent and uh, <laughs> obviously you know if uh, let's say you you are required to um, or you are asked to write the terms of service for a website for an online shop you want someone who really knows as the US client and someone who knows the US uh, world. And this is yeah. That's really interesting. I th yeah, that that it's almost like um a, a an implicit geographic restriction to that labor. You know, management consulting in some ways is a global 
skill, right? Whereas, yeah, if 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 I, you know, obviously I'm Australian. Um, listeners know that by now. Uh, you know, we're we're on episode five right now. Um, and uh, in, if I wanted a, a deal conveyanced, a, a, say a real estate deal conveyanced in Australia, I wouldn't be able to access the global market of conveyances and lawyers. I would have to access those qualified in Australia, which I assume is going to be mostly confined to Australian conveyances and solicitors. So, yeah, that's actually a really interesting point and very helpful for the freelancers listening as well. Absolutely. I, uh, I interrupted you though, so go ahead. No, sorry. I just wanted to say, and this is, you know, where again, um, this, the same kind of theme comes up again, that mm. the individual actions or the individual outcomes, I should say it like this, so the, the outcome that you as an individual will get are to some extent out of your hands. You can do whatever you want. You know, I will not be able to get a US American accent. And I'm also very unlikely to know the US law in that much detail. Of course, I might have, thanks to my education and thanks to my background, I might be able to specialize in things like data science as I do, that might mm -hmm. give me um, an advantage in this field, which might be good for me, but I'm not free to move in this completely free, barrier free labor market to w wherever I want. This is out of my hands. And this is the important finding. It is not so much about what the individuals can or cannot do, but it is really about how this global market, how, you know, interaction and exchange and transaction between people that don't know each other at all, but, you know, are just anonymous atoms in this global labor market are having an effect of each other. So it's almost a little bit like the butterfly effect. You know, there is, um, startup companies in San Francisco that just want to get help with their different tasks in order to save a bit of money on the wage bill, or they might not actually be able to get the talent locally who invented these types of platforms in the first place, which has now a huge impact of people that live in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, that live in South Asia or other places of the global South. And there is actually even very, um, un very much unintended consequences. I read in a book that was co-authored by, um, uh, sorry, not co-authored, that was a single author by uh, Professor Wille de Donwürter from the Oxford Internet Institute in his really great book called Cloud Empire. There's a chapter on online labor markets. And they told me to read this. Yeah, this it's really worth reading it. And there is um, this, um, this one anecdotal evidence that um, these days, there is even a black market, you know, on the dark web for these accounts on websites like Fiverr, freelancer.com and Upwork, because in certain parts of the labor market where the platform even realized competition is too high, we can't have this anymore. People are wasting their time on, on uh, searching jobs and the employers don't want 1000 people applying for this gig because it would take them too much time. And so there's now even a black market for kind of passports, people wanting to get online labor market this very same way as they want to go into the, the on-site labor market and trying to enter um, the physical labor markets by migrating or by... Um, mm, that's interesting. So essentially people are almost like auctioning off their established accounts. And, and that's a really interesting point because, you know, even again, going back anecdotally, I remember um, Upwork at a time that I was, again, when I was doing some post-grad study and, um, and freelancing on the side for a bit of um, petty cash, say, um, I remember signing up to several platforms. And at the time, one of them, I think Upwork wasn't taking people with my particular skills, which meant that if I wanted to get 
onto that platform, I had to essentially take over somebody else's account. And I'm sure, as you point out, black market, there are certainly issues around that and the platform isn't, isn't um, willing to allow that to happen overtly. Um, but it reminds me actually of a, of a legal structure that's somewhat similar to that. It, it sounds, by the way you describe it, Fabian, a little bit like um, the way that taxi licenses work um, and the way that also in some ways you could say franchises work. You know, if you want to open up a McDonald's, oftentimes you might actually have to buy out an existing McDonald's franchise um, because of the supply issues. Um, if you want to buy a taxi, um, in some ways, I remember a taxi driver telling me once in some ways he considered it him buying himself um, a job and, and future cash flow from doing that job and, and a, certainly, a certain level of predictable income, which, of course, was thrown into complete disarray um, when Uber came to be but um but it's interesting how there's you know the way you put it there that the black market version of that where you know these profiles inherently have value exactly exactly these have value and um i think the important concept for people to take away and you know on a conceptual note of thinking about the digital economy this is very much now building on willie de donberger willie book here is um, that these institutions, they emerge naturally. So even though people think like, you know, as you said in the beginning, like remote work is democratizing where we want to work or the internet is democratizing how we get our information or how we can contribute to different um, things in the world. What we see is just naturally structure and hierarchy is emerging. In this particular case, like a, you can say a border is emerging. A border between those who are in the market and who are not in the market is emerging just naturally. And this is how we should think about the world because this is also how over time, you know, there's in this field of complex systems, I briefly touched upon it. There's also a very interesting um, field within it that looks into um, understanding human history from this complex mm. system perspective and how things naturally emerge like you know empires over time emerge how they rose and how they fall and this same thing is just happening in the labor market these days so hierarchy and certain structure is emerging naturally in our particular case here i'm very much convinced from what we look at um from the data perspective here um, that the skill access is driving this so access to institutions that allow you to have the types of skills that you can bring to the market that does not necessarily mean high skill or low skill or a lot of education or not so much education but really um, having the types of skills that allow you to make a living to get a good livelihood from it and this again is not your own decision just by yourself but it is really the um, um, the um, the outcome of all the independent decisions made around the world by people um, requesting more jobs so more demand on the online labor market in certain types of fields and more people having the idea of signing up as employees or as freelancers on the market until this very extreme as you just described where you maybe even with your very particular type of skills still the platform said no sorry we can't let you in here anymore because we have too many people like you and then of course this is the worst outcome for you if you you know <laughs> put all your eggs in this basket and wanted to make your living from it and this is you know how we see these unintended consequences so the invisible hand of the market kind of yeah. um, playing out in both positive and negative ways and this also is driving then our implications of this research that this needs to be taken into account 
So something you said a little bit uh, just a moment ago, and, and there's been a theme of this, you would say, through our conversation, which is interesting. And I wanted to bring it back to a little anecdote that I came across a little while ago. This, The anonymous atoms, you put it, you know, these virtual teams, these virtual interactions people are having with one another. You know, the idea as an example of, um, of having no FaceTime with people that you um, seek labor from, right? So being the client, being the, the company that's seeking out some freelance work. I remember hearing a story not that long ago that an employee, I can't remember if she was based in London or or somewhere else, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say it was in London, um, was lobbying her boss um, to give her full remote work, right, for her to work completely remotely. And so she built out this business case that said, really, there's no reason for me to be in the office. You don't need me to be here. I can do this job from anywhere. And the employer's response, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this to you or if you've heard it before, um, was to make come to that realization. So she did, did a good job at, at selling that to them. But instead of them maintaining her salary and allowing her to live anywhere she wanted, they fired her and hired a much cheaper worker on one of these platforms. So, so there's an interesting kind of um, interpersonal element to this as well that's really interesting to me. And it, it kind of speaks to you know, this network, this, this concept of network theory that you were alluding to earlier and, and, you know, complex networks of people interacting with one another and the fact that, that in many ways, perhaps what we, we have in, in the physical world is, is being extrapolated in, in the virtual world with respect to relationships as well as, as these other points that you've made. Yeah, I would. I would just want to corroborate what you just said. Uh, I absolutely feel, and you know, that would be one of the implications of our study. Uh, that lady you were just referring to, uh, she uh, misread maybe, you know, uh, how the state of affairs looks like in her particular case, uh, disregarding, you know, the global competition that actually is happening, and with the platformization of the labor market, very much we see that this is becoming possible. So really. Uh, our study is, uh, you know, taking a different angle from, from many other studies, I believe, within the platform economy, as we you know, are investigating how um, the platformization of something that is traditionally not organized via platforms, namely the labor market, how this is having huge impacts on the geography of the labor market at large, on a global and subnational level, as well as um, on um, the outcomes that individual freelancers might obtain. And the one you're referring to is clearly one of these effects where, let's say, a non-platform organized type of um, transaction was then suddenly replaced because, you know, all the enabling institutions from the employer's perspective were suddenly there. Um, So in this particular case, without knowing it in much detail, probably the IT infrastructure was there for the lady to theoretically work remotely, which she probably did throughout the COVID pandemic. So there was already like a working proof of concept that her task could all be done remotely. And then she even um, sat and suggested this herself. And of course, in the meantime, what we saw in the economy, uh, some of the listeners might have seen this with their friends or so, is that some people are actually able to work remotely and there's these specialized uh, legal consultancies and agencies that um, do all of the kind of legal things around it. Let's say um, you want to, um, let's say, live in Portugal and work in the UK. Then the way it works is, for example, then the UK employer pays, you know, just a service, almost as if you are like a free consultant to this agency. And this agency has their own whatever subsidiary, small company that employs the person in Portugal paying this freelancer in euros 
contributing to the social security there. So all of these enabling institutions are by now enabled. Of course, the COVID pandemic had quite a big deal in doing that. And this um, can then lead to this very adverse outcome for the uh, for the for your friend that you just mentioned, uh, who even lost her job through that. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting point, and 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 you saying that makes me think that you know perhaps a future episode needs to be, um, you know, you speak about AI and ethics and all those sorts of things, but you know the um the, the dynamics of play in the gig economy, you know what that means for um for you know I guess the um. The, the right brain side of things here, employee relations, um, rights, you know, all these sorts of things. There's a, there's a big, there's a, there's a big argument out there that's in, in recent years with the gig economy, we've been, um, rewinding, um, uh, say disassembling a lot of the, um, uh, industrial relations law and, and legislation, uh, that, that, you know, so many people in the, say the mid 20th century, worked to to get put together so it's a it's a fascinating point and and so many dynamics at play um with this so it's a yeah fascinating paper and and again you know as as we discussed nothing more interesting than uh than some unexpected outcomes so congrats on the paper and um and we're gonna have to have you back for to discuss some some of this in a bit more detail once uh once you guys move forward with some of this research no, thank you very much. I would I would love to talk about other aspects or other implications of this as well. Thank you very much, Luke, for having given me the opportunity to talk about our paper. And uh, I believe the link of the paper will be shared with the yes, text. yes, it will. Yeah. So for those watching via YouTube, you'll see the link to the paper in the uh, YouTube description. And uh, and for for those who aren't though, um, the title of the paper: the global polarization of remote work. Where can they find it if they're not clicking the link? Can they just Google it and it'll come up? Um, should they Google your name as well, Dr. Fabian Brazeman? Um, any other tips there? Yeah, I think if you uh, type in into Google, like the global polarization of remote work, you should be happy already finding this. Mm. You should be lucky at finding this. Uh, if not, if you type in my name with it, Brazerman, or the name of the journal, it's called Plus One, you will definitely find it. Plus One, my name, or Plus One Remote Work, you will find this paper. It's open source, so it's freely available online for everyone to read. And there's also a number of uh, small newspaper articles in English and German that yes. might also pop up if you type it in to Google. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well, Fabian, thanks again. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Bye. Speak to you soon. Bye.